I did want to mention, acknowledge that uh, I, I appreciate your prayers. I, I had uh, surgery this week, minor hernia surgery. And, uh, and, and you know what they say the difference between minor surgery and major surgery is? Uh, minor is when you're having it. Major is when I'm having it. And, uh, but no, this, this went well. Uh, feels good to, to have that uh, done. And so thank you uh, for your prayers. Uh, a couple of quick reminders. First of all, Matt did a great job with the week of prayer. Uh, you know, typically we would gather in the sanctuary every night, every evening for seven days as a church. We would gather and we would pray. And uh, as we know, uh, it's just a different uh, time right now. And so we need to make some adjustments. Uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. And so I, I hope that you really engage in the week of prayer uh, as uh, the first full week of 2021. Please be a part of that. Like Matt said, every day there will be a different video by a different person. Just last a minute or two uh, about a different topic, kind of uh, just giving you a focus for prayer uh, each day. And uh, so again, I really encourage you to do that. Thanks, by the way, for everyone who made those for us. Uh, there are uh, little refrigerator magnets out there uh, in, at the Connection Center uh, that remind us of the theme moving forward in 2021. I, I hope that you get uh, some of those. Uh, we also The new newsletter is out. Make sure you grab one of those. If you don't get that mailed to you, make sure you grab one of these on your way out. And then, uh, finally, uh, on your chair was uh, the program. And on the back side of the program is uh, the notes that go along with the sermon. Some people really connect with the notes. Other people uh, would rather just have a blank uh, sheet there. Whatever works for you, it's there uh, for your uh, use. And uh, I'm looking forward to the new series. It's called Everything uh, I Learned. And the, the series is based on uh, a poster that I saw many years ago. And it was called, Everything I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. It was uh, made by a man named Robert uh, Fulgram. Uh, I have a good vibe going with him. I call him Bob now. And, and on this poster, there it is, uh, and there's many different versions of it. There's, you can find all different looks to it. But it, it says things like, again, it's everything I, I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. So it's things like share and play fair, don't hit. Put things back where you found them. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. <laughs> Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. I ascribe to that. Uh, live a balanced life. Learn some. Draw some. Paint some. Sing and dance and play and work some every day. Take a Nap every afternoon, it's good advice. Uh, when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. I like this one. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up. Nobody really knows how or why. Then it says the goldfish, the hamster, and white mice, and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup. They all die. So do we. Everything I learned, I learned in kindergarten. And it's true, isn't it? Most of life's lessons 
are learned pretty early. The patterns are established long before the cement of our lives begins to set. The year was 1946, and my Uncle Tom was six years old. That was when he and a little girl from the neighborhood named Ann Quam put their tiny hands into the wet cement in front of Ann's house on the 2200 block of East 7th Street in Superior's friendly East End. Those impressions lasted until just recently, 75 years, a lifetime. The principles of the Bible are pretty basic too, and and they're established early on. And more and more I have come to see the value of the book of origins, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Genesis starts with the most basic principle of all, in the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1, the first chapter, the the first verse. In chapter 2, God creates the world and designs the pinnacle of his handiwork, the human race. And then in Genesis 3, we come to the epic clash that establishes the conflict, the struggle, and the backdrop for the rest of the Bible. It turns out everything we need to know is found right here in Genesis 3. And what becomes abundantly clear very quickly is that there is an adversary. And here in Genesis 3, we learn what he's like. We learn, first of all, that he's subtle. How do we know that? It it says it right in there. Uh, Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And, And he said unto the woman, the serpent did, Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The word subtle means shrewd, crafty, cunning, devious, clever. And indeed, Satan, the adversary, is all that. Now the significance of his subtlety is that even his opposition can be hard to detect. It's easier to fight when you know who you're fighting against. But in the case of the devil, the choice is not always between obvious good and overt evil. It's much more subtle than that. Sometimes it's, it's a barely detectable choice between what God said and what the devil tells you God meant. It's like when Abraham told the king of Gerar that Sarah was his sister because he feared they would kill him if they thought he was her husband. In Genesis 20, the first two verses, it says, Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, and he dwelt in Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in the land of Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, later, 
the king finds out that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, what are you doing? Great question. And Abraham said, because I, I, because I thought surely the fear of the Lord is not in this place and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Now, that's an interesting twist. We find out Abraham and Sarah actually had the same father. She was his half-sister. And now it's muddled. Was it still wrong? Was it okay for Abraham to deceive the king? Was it just a little white lie? Was it a sin? The enemy is subtle. The choice is not always as clear as we want it to be or as clear as we hope it will be. And Genesis 3 verse 1 ends with a key idea. Satan says to Eve, didn't God say that you could eat of any tree in the garden? It's like Abraham. Technically, she's my sister. The devil is subtle. His process, here's a good statement for you, his process is better described as compromise than it is confrontation. And his method is to twist Scripture. The Bible says this in verse 2 of Genesis 3, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you're, you're not going to die. For God does know in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. From the very beginning, the devil was out to pervert Scripture. Now the word pervert, when you look up the meaning of the word pervert, it actually means to twist. It means to turn inside out. And being aware of the subtle style, the subtle nature of the enemy helps us to value the detail and the intricacy and the importance of Scripture. When we begin to understand how Satan will twist and will pervert the Word of God, we will take seriously and we will begin to ask different questions about the Word of God. For example, the question will not be, what does Scripture mean to you? The question will become, what does Scripture mean? Period. It's crucial that as believers, as students of God's Word, as disciples of Christ, it's crucial that we learn to rightly divide 
the word of truth. We need to know what it really means, not what we want it to mean, not what you think it means, or not what it happens to mean to you in your situation. We cannot, we must not impose meaning upon a passage of Scripture. The Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we need to know some things about the passage that we're studying. We need to understand context. Context speaks of background and framework and the situation that we find the scripture in. We also need to know the who, what, where, when, and why of a passage. We need to know who said it. One of the most misquoted, misconstrued scriptures in the Bible comes also from the book of Genesis. And it's it's when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Now, we quote that like the answer is no. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, the reality is you're quoting the first murderer in the Bible. You're quoting Cain, and the answer to the question in reality is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Second, uh, so the first one is who said it. We need to know who said this, in this case Cain, but we also need to know who did they say it to. Who are they talking to? The passage of Scripture. Who's it written to? Is it written to a Jew? Is it written to a Gentile? Is it written to someone who's saved? Someone who's lost? It all matters as far as meaning. We also need to know when did they say it? Is it, is it said during the dispensation of the law or the dispensation of grace, for example? Did you know that there's a Scripture that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And another one that says, turn the other cheek. So we need to understand what dispensation these words are spoken in, written in, so that we can understand not what the Bible means to me, what the Bible means. And only after discerning what the passage means can we even begin to move into the realm of application and next steps. Jumping into the what it means to me before we understand what the scripture means is a disaster of epic proportion. This is how cults are formed and false doctrine is promoted. It's a manipulation of scripture and it describes to a large degree where the modern church is moving. It's okay for you guys to say amen out there. It's okay for me. How else do entire denominations get to the place where they can condone abortion or ordain homosexual ministers? They fail to recognize the subtlety of the adversary and they fail to see that he twists scripture to his advantage. We also learn from Genesis 3 that our adversary has an agenda. The Bible says this, The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's a very clear mission statement for the devil. 
But let's not forget, Jesus has an agenda too. The rest of that verse says, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Luke 19.10 is Jesus speaking. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why Jesus came. Aren't you glad this morning? Now, the juxtaposition of the two agendas reveals and makes clear the first lesson we learn from Genesis 3. Everything I learned, everything I need to know about the Bible, everything I need to know about serving God, I learned in Genesis 3. And the first thing I learned is there is an adversary. The adversary is the devil. And the sin of the one originally named Lucifer is rooted in pride. I think we can make a case that, that pride may be the root of all sin. It's clearly seen in the five I wills of Lucifer that are found in Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you did say in your heart, now here come the five I wills, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And in his pride, his agenda is revealed. Satan, the adversary, was originally known as Lucifer. He was a a high-level angel created by God. When he fell, when he sinned against God, he became known by some other names. And one is the devil. Now the word devil, the word itself actually means slanderer. Well, that seems to fit. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. That's worth noting. He's, he's a liar. He's a, a slanderer. He's the accuser of the brethren. And in John chapter 8, Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Listen, why in the world would we believe anything the devil has to say? Why in the world would we buy anything he's selling? But how did Lucifer come onto the scene? Who is the one that we know today as Satan? Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, and I didn't write this out because it's, it's a little too lengthy but it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. So you can look it up and follow along, or you can sit back and just listen carefully. But Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 12, it offers some clues to the origin and the beginnings, again, of the one that we know as, as the devil, the one who would become the, the arch enemy, the antithesis of the most holy God. Verse 12 says, thus saith the Lord God, you sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Talking about Lucifer, 
the angel. You have been in Eden in the garden of God. That's an interesting clue. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle. Probably my favorite jewel in the Bible, the carbuncle. Gold and the workmanship of thy tabrets or timbrels and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that you were created. Verse 14 of Ezekiel 28. You are the anointed cherub that covers. Speaking of Lucifer. And I have set thee so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in all of your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Here we, we get a description of his pride. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay before thee kings that they may behold you. You have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour you, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at you. You shall be a terror, and never shalt thou be anymore. Lucifer was an angel, a, a cherub, the Bible says, created by God. And it's important for us to note, he was not created evil. He rebelled. He chose his own way instead of God's way and influenced one-third of the angels into rebellion with him. The fallen angels are referenced in, in several places in the Bible. I wanted to give you at least one reference, 2 Peter 2.4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. It's important also for us to realize that the devil, hear me now church, the devil is a created being. He is not an equal to God. He is a creation of God. He is not sovereign. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He's created by God. It does seem, however, that Lucifer was a high-level angel. He seems to have been at least on par with the archangels like Michael and Gabriel. Jude 9, there's only one chapter in the book of Jude, so Jude verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, with Lucifer, 
He disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against Lucifer a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He's referred to as a cherub that covers. And to me, that speaks of authority. One theory is Lucifer uh, was an angel with much power, much authority. He was given dominion and stewardship over the part of the universe that would contain the planet Earth. When Lucifer rebelled, a war ensued, and the earth was left without form and void. And and what we think of as the creation account begins from there. Some believe Lucifer was heaven's original worship leader. The idea that Satan was a master musician comes from that Ezekiel passage, verse 13. It says, The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Hmm. The musical terms found there in that Ezekiel account could possibly refer to Lucifer having been created and prepared and designed for worship. Now, I believe that music was created for worship. I believe that to be a true statement. Music itself was created for for worship. And the reason I say that is music is an amazing gift. And music is, is wired into you. Music isn't isn't something superficial. Music is soulish. You understand what I mean when I say that? And in fact, there's a great scene in MASH, and Rhonda and I love the show MASH. And there's a great scene in MASH where where Charles, the the surgeon, uh, he's an amazing surgeon, uh, uh, soldiers wounded, come to find out that the, the wounded soldier is a concert pianist. And Charles feels good about the fact that, that he was able to repair his hand and it, and it looks perfectly normal, but there's nerve damage. He doesn't know that the guy plays piano. And Charles loves the piano. And so when he discovers that this guy is a concert pianist, not only is the patient devastated, but Charles is, is devastated. And so, so as the guy's super discouraged, as you can imagine, and Charles goes to great lengths to try to lift his spirits and encourage him and give him hope moving forward. And one of the things that he says to him has always stuck with me. He says, you know, you've already done something that that I'll never do. I would give anything to be able to play what you've played. And he says, and Charles says, I can play the notes, but I can't play the music. And the guy says, well, I can't either. And Charles says, yes, you can. Because the music isn't in your hand. It's in your head and in your heart and in your soul. And and how true it is, music is soulish. 
Music impacts us on a deeper level. It's why you can be moved by a musical score during a movie. You're made to feel suspense or grief or warmth or romance. Your emotions are activated and animated through music like they are in no other way. Music touches us on a soulish level at the very core of our being. Songs lodge in our memory from decades ago, and there's a reason for that. I believe music was created for worship. When Lucifer sinned and rebelled against God, he twisted music into something it was never meant to be. He perverted it. The fallen angel named Lucifer is our adversary. And the adversary has clear motives. The devil, Lucifer, Satan, the dragon, the accuser of the brethren, call him what you will, he wants to usurp God. Everything he does promotes his effort toward this futile end. His prime weapon is temptation. As he induces mankind to sin, his agenda is to win people to his side through the exploitation of our carnal desires. And, and he has the easier sell, right? Satan, the devil, has the easier sell. He's dealing in the realm of instant gratification. You get the best up front. His methods appeal to the senses. They're very sensual. And a lot of times when we think of that word sensual, we think of sexual but really it appeals to the senses, all of the senses. And his road is easier. It, Satan's, the, the road that he has to sell you what he's, his, his wares, his goods, is, is all downhill. His message is, if it feels good, do it. We have a much harder sell as believers, Right? The message we're trying to sell speaks of delayed gratification. It speaks of God's ways that deny the flesh, that mortify the flesh, that crucify the flesh. The way of the cross is difficult. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's a, that's a tough sell. So we have our work cut out for us. It's not easy. Now the good news is it's, it's not really about us. It's about Jesus. So we can easily and obviously conclude from the early, verse of, the early verses of Genesis 3 that there is an adversary. Satan, the devil, is in an active contest against the living God. He's out to deceive you and me in an effort to turn us against God. He will hold nothing back. He does not play fair. He does not tell the truth. He will exploit your weaknesses. He will kick you when you're down. He will sucker punch you. He will shoot you in the back. So what do we know about the devil? Four quick hitters as I close. Number one, his motive is clear. He wants to sit on God's throne and rule the universe. Pride. That's who he is. Number two, his methods are clear. He uses 
sin to recruit followers. That's an easy sell. I think often of the, uh, the college sports recruiting scandals from years past where they bring in, picture this, they bring in a, a high school kid, that kid that just graduated from high school, and they want him to go to their college. And so all the, the boosters and the alumni, uh, they all introduce things like, like alcohol and money and strippers and, and parties. They use sin to recruit. And trust me, the idea is, is nothing new. It came from Lucifer himself from the very pit of hell. Number three is end game is not for your good. Then shall he say, depart from me. This is Matthew 25. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It only stands to reason that if you follow Lucifer, you will end up where he leads you. And finally, number four, the work of Satan is a backdoor faith builder. If there is an evil adversary, there is also a good God, a God who will never leave you and a God who will never forsake you. Listen to what Peter says about this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Delayed gratification, right? Casting all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. And then this warning. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Yes, we... We have an adversary. You can read about him in Genesis 3. But Jesus came to earth to see to it that sin and the devil, the adversary, would not have the final say. And this epic conflict, conflict between good and evil, this, this fork in the road that we all come to, we would have a clear choice. And the clear choice is between the ways of the world, the ways of pride, the way of sin, or the way of the Spirit, the way of the Word, and the way of God. And so we all make this choice. There's an epic conflict. We stand at a crossroads. On a regular basis, I believe. And the Spirit of God speaks to us and says, you have a choice to make today. You have a choice to make. And that's where we, we stand today. First Sunday of 2021. How exciting is that? Once again, we find ourselves at a crossroads. We can choose God's way. We can choose the ways of the world. If it feels good, do it. Doesn't God want you to be happy? That's a short-sighted, instant gratification message, and it's a lie out of the pit of hell. Choose the word of God. Choose the way of God. 
And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And today I'm going to ask you, on this first Sunday of 2021, if you're willing to choose Jesus. And so as our service comes to a close, I want to give you an opportunity. And I'm going to ask you just to, in just a second, to to bow your head and to close your eyes. And the only reason I do that is to give other people privacy. And then I'm going to ask you to choose Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never committed your life to Jesus, all I'm going to ask you to do is slip up your hand so that I can include you in our closing prayer as our service dismisses in a few moments. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to to love you and to serve you. Thank you for the clear choice. There is an adversary. And he has made his methods known. But Lord, today we choose Jesus. And so for the one that's here today, that's never given their heart and life to you today, Lord, I want to give them that opportunity. If you're here today and you're choosing Jesus, would you slip up your hand so that I can include you in our closing prayer in just a few moments? I just want to know that you're choosing Jesus today. I see that hand in the middle section. Thank you. Uh, Over here on the left, my left, I see that hand too. Thank you. It's two over here on my left. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else today? You're choosing Jesus today. Mm. Lord, thank you. Lord, I see three hands. There may be more. Lord, we choose you today. We recognize what the adversary is up to. We recognize that he's the slanderer. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's a liar. And so we choose a different way. We choose you. We choose Jesus, the one who died on the cross to save me from my sin. Oh, how we love you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your only begotten Son into the world to die for our sins, that that to everyone who would believe in him, they would never die, but they would have everlasting life. We thank you for that great privilege today. Lord, today, the first Sunday of 2021, we choose Jesus. Amen.